Hey, welcome to episode 16 of the New Slang Podcast. I'm Thomas Mooney, the editor of New Slang. And uh, this week we went ahead and bumped up this podcast because we did it just like three days ago. Um, it's with Wade Bowen. We felt like it was uh, super relevant. Uh, so yeah, I decided to, let's go ahead and throw that out now and not wait like three weeks or something. Um, on this episode, you know, we, we talked about, um, I guess Wade's history with the blue light and, you know, his time here in Lubbock and, you know, what he has coming up on the horizons with, um, his often collaborator, Randy Rogers. And of course we also talked about, I don't know if I would necessarily call it a dust up. But his uh, mini beef with with uh, with what Granger Smith said about the whole minor leagues thing, um, that's at the end of the podcast. So he's got some really interesting things to say on it. Um, yeah, he was wearing a, a Midland Rockhounds hat when we were doing the podcast, which, of course, is a minor league team. Uh, I think he says that on the podcast, actually. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I should also mention real quick that Flatline Calvary, they're going to be doing a back-to-back -back night at the Blue Light here in September. I think it's September 8th and 9th. That first date is a Thursday. It's going to be with Troy Cartwright. And then that Friday is going to be with Caitlin Butts. So, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure tickets are going to be going on sale pretty soon. But also, we're going to be giving away a pair of tickets, at least at least one pair, that are, that's good for both nights. Um, for more information on that, you know, just follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. Just search for Newslang on Twitter. It's at Newslang underscore OBK. So, yeah, let's go ahead and just get on to this interview with Wade. Technical term. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I really don't do any intros or anything we just start talking how's it going man good man good how are you oh not bad just uh saturday night on a at blue light yeah man it's awesome isn't it yeah I, I don't get to hang out here much anymore and so it's it's so awesome to uh step step foot back in this place man lots of memories and yeah lots of great times yeah i actually uh brought a poster that 15 year anniversary poster because i want you to get it want you to sign it later. yeah yeah you know so i guess that's been like three years ago at least two or three years yeah back, three years you? ago yeah yeah what's uh when was that first time you played here do you remember the first the time? first time i played here actually um so my first gig in lubbock was actually at Stubbs, um which is a couple of blocks over yeah the old building and um, it was for an open mic night, and we were the only band that showed up. So we had like five songs we knew, and we had to play them over and over. Um, but we played there, and then they shut they shut Stubbs down shortly after that. That was October of '98, and they shut Stubbs down in like March of '99. So yeah, it was really sad to lose such a historic venue for Lubbock. When everybody had played there, it was really cool for us to start off there you know mm -hmm. and then uh a lot of the bartenders that work there drew brown being one of them came over here to work when they opened this place they opened this, up this place in february of 99 and so um they called us and said hey we heard you guys are a new band heard you'll have a decent following we got gigs in lubbock early because we had a lot of friends that came out it wasn't because we were good we were terrible 
Yeah. But we had a lot of friends that came out, so they liked us because we packed the bars. And uh, at that time at the Blue Light, they were trying to do. Um, Eric Colsar was the the manager, and he was trying to do like Thursday night, country night, Friday night, rock night, and Saturday night piano night or something. I don't know, yeah. something, something like that, you know? Like a variety. Night yeah. Kind of thing. So we played here on a Thursday night, and it was literally one table in the back by the window back here um, was it the whole night that showed up because nobody knew about the blue light. So mm -hmm. none of our friends knew to show up, and literally we played for probably about seven people. And uh, it was right when they first opened, too. So literally we grew with this place, vice versa, you know, like we uh, our career we get, we got to cut our teeth here and they got to learn the bar business through us as well so mm -hmm. I have a lot of memories here man I mean I, I ran sound for ragweed yeah back before the blue light had sound we had to run our own sound and something happened I even came up here and ran sound for ragweed one night and I was always up here I mean this place introduced me to a lot of my buddies now Cody Canada and Boland and Cooter Graw and all those guys, you know, yeah. Roger Craiger, all those guys I, I met here playing the Blue Light, Jack Ingram, Chris Knight. Yeah, I've, I think one of the most underrated aspects of the Blue Light has always been that there's not really a green room. Like there's like a green little hallway maybe right there. A green so ice it, room. Or yeah, so like you can it, – it honestly like pushes the bands kind of to mingle with people. And, of course, mm -hmm. like, you know, you can meet people here. It feels like you're they're – Everyone's just a little bit more interactive in a way. Yeah, because you, know? you can't get away from, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I can know, see it. But when, when I was first starting out, I, I, that's all I did was mingle. I was trying to mingle with everybody because we were just trying to beg people to come out. Yeah. But it is nice. I mean, of course, you know, along, along with, um, you know, hanging out at this bar a lot, um, I got to open up for some, some great people here, too. And, and it was a lot of fun for me, uh, acoustic and, and full band, to just get those experiences in. Um, in a small venue, learn how to work a crowd, learn how to make a set list, learn how to make a show. And uh, this place did it all for me, man. I mean, I, I owe everything to this place. Yeah. What's uh, what's Lubbock like? What, what's the difference between Lubbock now and then? Like when you come back, you know, what, what's... It just feels, it feels a lot bigger, um, number one. Number two, I feel old. <laughs> I feel like the old guy. Um, and there's nights when I... I literally still worry if uh, people are going to show up because I'm the old guy, you know. But but the kids come out; they still support us, and uh, you know I've always waved the Lubbock banner very, mm -hmm. very proudly. So it's uh, I hope that the kids here know that, and um, I think this this music scene has always been cool. Uh, when I was when I was in school here, I would I'd go to open mic nights, I'd go to uh, jam nights, I'd go watch John Sprott and. Sean Frankhauser, actually I lived next door to Sean Frankhauser for like a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Plain Brown Rapper. Uh, you know, we go watch those guys. And um, it was a lot of fun. I, it was a very underground um, music scene, but a very uh, well-crafted and underground music mm -hmm. scene for kids like us to, if you were smart enough to go pick their brains and, you know, learn from them. It, would, uh, it, was, it was a really good underground music scene that that uh, I don't think a whole lot of people knew about or really mm -hmm. know about at the time. There's a lot of great musicians in Lubbock. And unfortunately, you know, we found that out too. It, you build up something here, you build up a name in Lubbock, and it doesn't really matter anywhere else because you're so far away from everywhere. You know, yeah. you, you can go to Amarillo and 
Midland and San Angelo, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, one of one of the guys over here at Tornado Gallery, Larry Sibbins, he had a Facebook post the other day about how, uh, you know, basically any place in Lubbock, you can just, if, if someone's not familiar with, you just go like, oh, it's the old blah, blah, blah building. Exactly. And, you know, uh, I think like we all kind of have that, uh, where we look in our in the in the rearview mirror, so to speak, and we only see like f- four or five years back, and it can be hard to, you know, realize that there's there's guys who were here in the early two thousands, late nineties, yeah, mid nineties, and they're the you know they're still here, they're still working. Yeah, still working. I saw John Sprott's name at Triple mm-hmm. J over there a while ago when I was eating. Yeah, so cool to see that he's still still doing great. Um, I never really became great friends with John, but I watched him play all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was always one of my favorites just to go sit and listen to him play all those amazing songs. He's just endless, endless catalog of music. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, one of my buddies, Brandon Adams, we were talking about this the other day. You know, he said that in a way like those uh, mid-90s to early 2000s guys are in the same spot that, you know, like new bands like Flatland are in. Because they, they're both coming up, like they're both learning how to make CDs at the same time. And a lot of ways, like those, uh, I guess like that lost generation, they, they're like a step behind because they weren't able to figure out how to uh, get out on the road, so, so to speak. Yeah. You know? Or they just, uh, you know, maybe had chances and didn't want it. to. Who knows? Who knows yeah. You know? Uh, I can't imagine the talent level that those guys had. They didn't get opportunities, and mm-hmm. maybe they chose to just stay here and yeah. play. You know, at the Sprott, uh, the, those guys, Frank guys, those guys played seven nights a week. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, it always blew my mind that they never got out more. Um, but yeah, it was was a it was a weird time. I remember that time in the late nineties when um, we were really trying to figure out how to make a CD. How, how do you get that done? You know, and uh, at that time, I still had the inkling that, like, the thought process was that I thought, still thought I might have to move to Nashville to, to make, to make it, you know, to yeah. make it big, to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the age-old story of going out there waiting tables and waiting your turn till something happened so you could get that big record deal and, like you see in, in the movies, and uh, your career take off, right? And, and then I saw Robert Earl Keane play here my freshman year. And uh, I'd listened to Robert's stuff, but never seen him live. And when I saw him live, I was I was either 18 or 19. I was a freshman here, and uh, it changed my life. It mm-hmm. changed my life forever. I remember going, wow, you don't have to move. I don't have yeah. to go to Nashville. I can start a band here and try to do that, you know. And uh, we started a band. Me and somebody started a band, and... Pretty much were a Robert O'Keen cover band for a long time, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. because of that show. At that time, it was called, I think it was called The Library. Mm-hmm. It's uh, still over there. still there. Now it's... It's still The Library, but... Is it The Library? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh... Maybe it was called something else back then. I don't remember. I always find that interesting, the, the moment whenever you realize there's middle ground between, you know, being uh, just not putting out a record and being George Strait, mm-hmm. that middle ground of like, oh, you can be, there's millions of musicians and bands who aren't, you know, selling out arenas. 
Mm-hmm. Right, know? right. And you can find yourself somewhere in the middle ground. I always, especially nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nowadays more than ever, you can you can make a living off the middle ground if you want to. You know, um, mm-hmm. because uh, it's so different from when I first started. And even when I first started, there was um, there weren't. I don't, I don't think people realize that there weren't a whole lot of places like the Blue Light that gave people opportunities to play original music. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't. Um, and I'm, I'm not talking about Lubbock. I'm talking about everywhere. Everywhere. When yeah. we first started, it was it was like unheard of. And and now every other block has a place where people are playing their own music in Texas. And it wasn't like that, man. It, it took a long time to get to that point. And it took a lot of people taking risks on bands like us. Um, putting us, putting them in their bars when they weren't a live music venue, and and they took chances on us. And I mean, it, it really was a a really cool process to watch. You know, Pat take off and Ragweed and Corey Morrow. You know, was so big back then. Like he was such a great part of that process. I loved what he did. Um, and 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 then Bowl and all those guys. You know, they everything just kind of slowly took off, and it was really fun to to be a younger part of that. And mm-hmm. watch watch it happen, you know. Watch them. Um, first time I saw uh, Cody Ragweed, I came up here because Eric Colsar said he was the manager here at the Blue Light. He said you need to come see this band. And so I took a break from studying or something, and I came up here. And uh, it was like a Wednesday night or something, Thursday night, and uh, Cody was wearing a big old like. And now I guess you could say it's a. I used to say like a Charlie Daniels feather hat, cowboy hat, you know, now yeah. now more like a Chris Stapleton hat. Yeah. That's <laughs> referred to it as that, but that's what he was wearing. And he was playing like the man had taken a break and he was playing Amarillo by morning on the electric guitar, just him and his guitar. You know, that's my first glimpse of Cody. And now he's my brother-in-law and one of my dearest friends in the universe. So it's funny how, uh, yeah, it's funny how, 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 how much has changed in those years. Mm-hmm. Where was that, like your first record recorded? Did you have to, Did you have to go outside of Lubbock and? My first record was done in Austin. Yeah, it was called Austin to Boston Studios, and uh, we had no clue what we were doing. Um, the record is no longer available, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just went in with some buddies, and our band went in, and it was just a huge, huge learning curve as to the point that oh my god we probably should not be in the studio right now yeah <laughs> doing this of course at the time we're thinking we're rock stars we're finally doing it making a cd but yeah uh, it was a big deal back then to have a cd you know not yeah. everybody had them like they do now but <clears throat> we we did it and uh got it out and i was back actually when cds sold mm-hmm. now you know it, it was uh it was different but i'm glad it's not available for the public anymore. how many copies were made how many you know, I don't even know. Probably five thousand. Really? Maybe. See, maybe. I'm, I always like to go like on Amazon and like search for like those records that aren't in print anymore. I uh, have people that say, "Why do you, why do you get rid of that? Like, why do you lose a part of your um, catalog? Catalog? Yeah. Why do you not want that? And the reason is because I have everything else I've left up." Mm-hmm. But the reason I didn't want that one is because I feel like if people become fans of my stuff now and they're a new fan, like I do, I go back and check out everybody's previous stuff in their whole entire catalog. And uh, I did not want people to spend their money on that 
and waste their money. And yeah, <laughs> I felt like it was it was wrong because it was so bad. Yeah. Um, so I've never really honestly thought about that part because like some people, I've always thought of the the side of just like being embarrassed by it, but you know. In a way, you're just saving people money. Well, so, yeah, yeah, I'm embarrassed because I don't want them to spend their money because I'm yeah. embarrassed. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. I sound like a, I sound like a chipmunk, you know. I sound like a little kid, and uh, it's definitely. I, I just I, I want it out of my out of out of my uh, out of my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny though. Like you can find some of those CDs on Amazon selling for fifty bucks, yeah, a hundred bucks. Uh, I was talking with Ryan Bingham about that, but like. You know, he had three or four records that were just before Mescalito that were just, yeah. you just never really find. And, you know, you can find them on Amazon for like $100. And he was saying how, you know, he couldn't give them away for five bucks at the time. Yeah. And, you know. I remember those records. Ryan Ryan play, opened up for us a lot of shows when he first started. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember really loving his stuff and really thinking, man, if you just could find a right producer and get in the right moment, it could really take off. Little did I don't know that was going to be. T-bone, yeah, but man, yeah, he we we have a lot of good experience together with Ryan. I don't see him much anymore, but back in the early days when he first started, I really believed in what he was doing, and really, I mean, obviously back then you knew from the get go that this kid was not following anybody's rhythm but his own. You know, I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's he was doing his own thing from the get go, and it was really fun. We actually, I got, I got kicked out of a the only time I've ever gotten kicked off stage was at Blancos in Houston, Texas. And uh, I have no clue why they kicked us off stage. They didn't like us. They thought we were on drugs or something. And I was like, man, I've never done drugs in my life. Yeah. Like, you know. And uh, Ryan Bingham opened up the show, and he was standing up for us, man. He was chewing those people's asses, <laughs> <laughs> saying it's wrong. We're nice guys. What's wrong with y'all and everything? It's so funny to look back on that, man. But he said, I remember the owner walking up and go, y'all, you're done. I was like, we're not done. You want to get paid, you're done. I go, yes, sir. We'll pack up our stuff right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the uh, only time. The only time I ever gotten kicked off stage. I'm not a troublemaker, man. Yeah. You know, so I don't know why we even got kicked off stage. I shouldn't even be on my record. We weren't even doing anything. But it's safe to I'm, say we never played Blancos in Houston, Texas. Ever yeah. Again. Well, I'm, sh- I'm guessing that's before phone era of oh, yeah. oh, recording. Yeah. So. Yeah. You may have been Johnny Cashing it up there, smashing lights. I don't think I was. (laughs) I just know we were really tired. We'd played the Wormy Dog in Stillwater the night before for a St. Paddy's Day party. And we drove in a pickup truck, pulling a trailer all the way to Houston the next day. And we had to play the Blancos. We had to set up our own sound, run our own sound, and play like three or four 45-minute sets. It's one of those gigs, you know. Mm -hmm. So we were just exhausted, man. I was like... Stillwater to Houston is it's a, a long ass drive. Yeah. So who who cares? Yeah. That to me I think like the, the craziest part of you talking on any of this is like that you, you guys all had to run your own sound. Yeah. I don't really well, think there's many I'm obviously you're not running set your own sound now, uh no, in back, the same way. Back but, then I, I I felt like it was smart because I got gigs because I had a PA. Yeah. <laughs> and uh there's people literally that booked me because we had sound system and they didn't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So we got real lucky there. Um, I, it was a chance I took, you know, borrowing some money and pay, paying it off and hoping that it was right. And yeah, we ran our PA before because, like, like I said, those venues they didn't have PAs. Yeah, they didn't, 
they started booking bands, but they didn't know what they were doing either. So they didn't know you had to have sound mm-hmm. to go with it. So we got gigs because I had a PA. So yeah, it helped me a lot, especially back then because we were terrible. So it helped helped get me probably Just more the, gigs than I should have gotten. The push to being can't know, imagine running my own sound now. Yeah, it was a lot of work loading in and loading out every night, man. It was a lot yeah. of work. Well, I mean, I'm this little board I have here. It's a I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I can't imagine. Running a whole band, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it wasn't fun, man. But back then, I mean, it's just different. I, I look back on it all and go, man, I don't think I could start over. I don't have that that drive anymore, you know, mm-hmm. to go through all that I did. But but back then, man, it didn't phase me one bit. I drove all over. I'd, I'd be at my apartment in Austin after I graduated from Lubbock. I'd, I paid for a place in Austin, but I was there maybe four or five days a month, you know. Um, just, you know, I'd play like Stillwater on a Saturday night and stay at the bar owner's house with he and his wife and just so I could play Monday night acoustic for a hundred bucks, you know, like I did that kind of stuff all the time and didn't phase me one bit to drive all over God's green earth for 50 bucks, hundred bucks just to get my name out there and do it, you know? And yeah. And, uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I was obsessed with it. And then I, when I graduated from Lubbock, I was living in Austin, but my band was all still here. So I was pulling the trailer, just me and myself, driving all over, meeting them. So they could take turns driving. I had to yeah. drive everywhere myself for Man. about two years. What was the – everyone has that, like, long drive. What's, that, what's, like, the longest drive from – For a gig? Yeah. Between two one spots. Time, one time I, I was in Nashville riding and working on some stuff, and I had to pl- I had to drive to Stillwater, and uh, I left late. I can't remember why, but I was scared to death, and I was, like, speeding like crazy, like hitting the governor on my on my car yeah. the whole way there, freaking out. I, I remember sliding. We were opening up for Ragweed um, at the Wormy Dog on the one-year anniversary of September 11th. And I was late. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like, don't be late for that gig, Wade. You know? Yeah. And I was running late. I slid in there sideways and, like, Ace Ventura style. Man, <laughs> and, uh, ran and jumped up on stage, literally. Ran up the stairs and jumped on stage. Wow. Right when I got there. Yeah. What What were those those uh, ragweed shows like back in the day? Like, when it was... Never. I think, like, we always think of... Like, we, we think of bands or eras or times being uh i don't know like it's hard now to sum up something you know how how was it for like when it was happening man it was probably the most fun i've ever had playing music um we were still working our asses off and they were blowing up and we were so happy for them and and it was just i mean it was just crazy it was just they didn't know necessarily how to handle it and they didn't care mm-hmm. and none of the crowds cared um they literally got that record deal because they had such a huge fan base huge fan following you know and tony brown fell in love with them because their fan interaction was just insane you know cody and those guys they had everybody in the palm of their hand every single night and i, I it's really sad i really miss the band i really miss those guys and i miss that music as much as I love The Departed now, I think it's really cool. You yeah. Know? And he Cody's playing a lot of that ragweed stuff. But 
there was just something about those four guys um, not being perfect, mm-hmm. not being the best musicians, but yeah. but just the real so garage passionate, yeah, aspect of it. Yeah, it was very you know Nirvana, Pearl Jam kind of thing, you know, to mm-hmm. me, and it was just so real. It was just Cody to me is the ultimate rock star that has. Um, such a nice presence about him you know it's you usually don't get both you usually yeah. get a really nice guy or a rock star asshole yeah and uh cody's like the best of both I, I think he's he's a great front man always has been a great front man and uh those days were just so fun to play shows with him and you know for multiple reasons you know but another big thing was they were so good about helping us and helping their friends they were so good about that. Shannon and and everybody was, you know, they were always trying to put you on shows, all opportunities that you had. Um, they always were uh, inviting you to come on stage and sing with them. I mean, it was just, you know, they uh, just they they. I've I've learned a lot from from the ragweed days and from what those guys did and 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 had at the time. It was a lot of fun, man. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine, you know, just the the weight of that band as far as knowing like you know they, they play now as far as the party goes and people are wanting uh ragweed songs played i can't imagine like feeling in a way obligated to to doing that you know what to i mean playing playing those songs yeah well not necessarily like just playing those songs but like doing the the nostalgia thing in a way you know what i'm saying because i think every artist wants to continue pushing their new stuff yeah, and finding that balance, part. I guess, between, uh, hey, here's the new stuff I've written that I want you all to, to all listen to and like, mm. but also I know you all want to hear seventeen. Yeah, and no, it's really hard, and especially, especially for Cody because, um, yeah, he's really fighting that ragweed thing and trying to get the departed. Well, they're they're doing great, mm-hmm. um, but it's like I said earlier, I don't know if I could do what he's doing, start all over from scratch. I mean. It shows you how much passion he has for what he does. Um, you know, Cody will be one of those people, like, I mean, he'll, he'll, I don't know, hopefully it's a long way down the road, but he'll die on the road. I mean, he'll just, he'll be yeah. Willie Nelson. You know, I mean, he, he'll never stop playing. Um, and so, yeah, he's always writing and always has new stuff that he's pushing. And, yeah, I, I find when we knew, you know, I've never really talked to Cody about it. Um but when I have new a new record, it's always it gets harder every year. Every I mean every record, um, to find figure out what you're gonna play, what new stuff you're gonna play. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, I, I think it's really important to figure out off new records what you're gonna push because, as much as we play live, um, it's just as important as having a single because you, if people are coming out to watch you. They're probably hearing what you what you're playing off the new record just as much as they would have something on the radio so it's mm-hmm. it's really important to choose wisely what you want to play for them what you want them to know and get and how you want to how you want those new songs to affect your show because your show becomes a new thing for you and for them as a listener so it's always uh, I, I remember the last record the last wade bowen record um the the self-titled record i remember calling around different guys just buddies willie braun and Ray Wiley asking, "Hey, just curious, man. How do y'all do it when you're yeah when you have a new record? Like, I'm always trying to learn from something, you know. Yeah. 
And if somebody like Ray Wiley Hubbard's willing to give me some advice, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. What's well, so. you know, you have like 25, 25, 26 slots as far as your yeah. set list goes. And I have about you know, 19 actually. Yeah. Well, uh, we, I was we being drag them out, <laughs> but you know, you, you, uh, you only have, you have the same amount of slots every year. Yeah, and, and, and plus you get more songs added yeah. to it. But and, and you also, like you said, you have the songs that you know that people showed up there to hear. And, man, they get mad if they don't hear them. Yeah. There's some songs you're just like, oh, I don't want to play this tonight, but I have to. Yeah. Or they're going to be, that's why they paid their money, you know. Yeah. So it's a it's a tricky game, man, but I guess it's a good game to have. Yeah, it's a good problem. I'm, yeah, a good problem to have. Uh, you know, like this last, I guess, these last two years, when did when did the self title come out? Oh, three? I mean, thirteen or fourteen? Fourteen. Fourteen. And then obviously you followed up with. And then fifteen was hold my beer. Mm-hmm. And then this year, earlier this year, was the gospel record, and then yeah, just a month ago was the acoustic record with Randy. So yeah, I'm. I'm my manager keeps laughing. He's like, man, this is pretty quick to be releasing new stuff, mm-hmm. but. I'm really happy in my career and really loving the freedom to be able to do these things. He actually slowed me down. I was going to make some more records and try to do some other stuff. And uh, yeah, he's like, you know, hit the brakes, buddy. Pedal, you know. <laughs> but let's slow down a little bit and, and, and pace ourselves a little bit more. Yeah. So I just, um, I think it's a day and age when you can do that. Like I said, it's not CDs anymore. It's digital. 80 to 90 percent of my sales are digital anyway so um kids kids are you know they lose not that they lose interest but their attention span is is a lot uh, less yeah an attention span than ever um so uh, you know i'll just keep trying to feed them new stuff and yeah well the gospel record you know that's something that you really couldn't have done 10 years ago yeah. You know, or it would have been a lot more difficult, obviously. Uh, you know, as far as what I know about it, it's one of those things where, you know, you made it for your mother mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily know if you were going to put it out. And we're just kind of. Yeah. When I made the record, I actually Sean McConnell produced it because oh, really? um, I, I had no time to do it. Like literally I had like four open days when when I could do it and get it done in time for my dad to give it to my mom. Uh, it was for her birthday slash Christmas. And so mm-hmm. I, I was so busy working at Hold My Beer Tour and my tour and then the West Coast Tour and all this stuff. So I had no time to do it. And um, I told Sean, I remember having a conversation. I said, I'm, I'm want the, my dad wants me to make a record, low budget um, for my mom, gospel. You're the most spiritual person I know. And I know you'll work hard and I need the help because I have no time. Can you do it? He said, yes. And then I said, and let's keep in mind that it's not going to be released, but we know how that works. You know? Yeah. Like, like I even try to make sure I get good work tapes when I write them now, because you just never know what's going to be heard by the world anymore. So yeah, we made sure that we didn't just half-ass it. We made sure that we made it with that and with the every intention of releasing it in our minds, even though we really didn't think we were, were going to. And then uh, after we finished it and family heard it and everybody it really came out way better than i ever could have imagined thanks to sean so once i heard the finished product and everybody else heard it in the family it was just like a no-brainer like why not why not release it what's it gonna hurt you know yeah. I mean, it just shows a 
a very unique side of Wade Bowen. I think it has a very Americana folk approach to it that I've never done before on records. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of we, we kind of went after the Buddy Miller sound sonically. To yeah. uh, we channeled our inner Buddy Miller, and uh, and and that that was a cool sound that I really wanted people to hear. And then also the gospel stuff as well. You know, just a different side of songs is in, entirely. So. Um, but I made sure I didn't like put a bunch of money into advertising or promoting it like, like normal, and did the same thing with this acoustic record with Randy. We, we just chose to just put it out there and let it, um, let word of mouth spread, you know. And mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the way I am right now. I'm not really, I'm not really worried about a whole lot. I just want to enjoy music and for the right reasons and yeah, the, try to get people to follow along with me as well. The gospel record had real grassroots feel to it mm. you know like i i feel like it i may be misremembering here but it felt like it was just basically released and announced the same week kind mm. of thing or at least within a couple of weeks and just was there uh you know i wish like more artists would do that maybe like as far as the because it, it feels more real more genuine just like a not as calculated and yeah. planned yeah well, there's good and bad to both. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, the calculation when you when you really go through a whole record release properly, it does make a lot of sense. As frustrating as it is, I mean, it's more yeah. frustrating for the artist than anybody because, um, you know, like they say, okay, I'll, I'll say it's going to be done this time, and they'll say, cool. Well, we need four months of preparation. So you're talking about waiting yeah. four months to hand it out to people and stuff. It. it but but when it's all said and done, that four months is a very short time frame for overall. When you're looking at the overall picture, mm-hmm. the the overall goal, and and there is a difference. You know, if I'd have done that with the gospel record, it probably would have been sold more, and probably would have had a bigger aspect, um, a, a bigger approach to everything. But yeah, um, I like the fact that we didn't do it with that. I like the fact that we just put it out there and let let word of mouth take yeah. over. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. Uh, so what's, I guess, on the front as far as, you know, hold my beer? Because obviously the, you did the, the live record, which I guess was uh, talking with you before. That was kind of more the plan before was doing like doing a live record. Then you guys decided to do a a, yeah. a studio record. Uh, then you finally, you know, do the, the live record. You know, what's the the plan going forward that you guys going to do well okay we something? had all these shows recorded mm-hmm. and we'll continue to record them just because it's it's so easy and fun and i mean i've got i've got a green hall show from 2008 that i've got recorded you know yeah i just like to preserve this stuff and have it and uh randy's willing to let me kind of have free reign with this whole my beer thing you know it's just uh, it's kind of fun um starting our own label little buddy tunes and yeah he kind of just lets me run the whole thing it's kind of nice he just yeah okay cool you know do it whatever you want just take my money you know and uh but splitting everything even you know it's just fun it's fun to do it we're we're good buddies and we've been through hell and bad together and i I think it's fun you hear it and all of it i mean you hear all the hell that we go through you hear all the heartbreak and you hear all the laughter and it's just it's a crazy crazy friendship we have and uh, when we were going to go, so we were going to release the record, um, we had it set to, to do um, a live acoustic record first. And so we were going to go in 
in the studio. We went in the studio to record three songs that we were going to tag at the end of the acoustic album and use those to have singles to radio so we could talk about the album. And then when we got in there, we realized it was too good to just do three songs and it was too much fun. So we immediately booked some more studio time and just said, let's just make a record. And literally management is calling both of us and saying, what in the hell is going on down there in Austin, Texas? And why is all the studio, what's all the studio time you're paying for? What is, what's all these invoices? We're, you know, yeah. Cause we didn't tell them. We didn't, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't plan any of it. Yeah. Um, we just knew it was fun and felt good, you know? And Lloyd Maines was, you know, I had high expectations anyway, working with Lloyd, but then to actually see him work and get to be in the room with him was just a blast. So he made it so easy and fun. We just let, let's go make a whole record. We really didn't know what we were going to do with it. And that was the end of October. And we released it in April. Mm -hmm. And that's literally how quickly it all. Were those first three done with Lloyd? Those first three songs that you were going to yeah. tack on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first three we did were, were with Lloyd producing. And then, well, it's too good. Let's just do the rest of the record. Mm -hmm. And so then we followed it up this year with, um, as we got set to do our acoustic tour, there was... You know, it's real sporadic this year. It's not all grouped together, but we are in the middle of our Hold My Bear and Watch This acoustic tour now. So we decided to release the live stuff as originally planned uh, this year. And then uh, we're going back in at the end of the end of this year to start another Hold My Bear Volume 2. So th I don't know what's going to happen with more live stuff, but we're, the, you know, the, the studio stuff, we're going to continue to call it Hold My Bear mm -hmm. Volume whatever. The uh, Watch This is the name of the live stuff that we've done. There may be more volumes of Watch This. I don't really know yet. I don't yeah. want to wear people out with live stuff. You know, there's only yeah. so much you can do of live stuff. You have like, like it's the, boring. Uh, well, I'm a f fan of Bob Dylan. Dylan has all the the bootleg series stuff. Yeah, and he's like on like 15 or something like that now. Is he really just, that many? Yeah, I've just now. I think like the last couple of them have been a little long-winded it's like man some of this stuff is good but you could have used a little bit of an editor here yeah. but as far as like what you know i guess like some of those new ones are like six discs long that kind of stuff or, yeah that's crazy and it's like oh, just make it two discs come on like but that's the plan we're just gonna keep recording and see what happens you know i think uh there's really magical moments that happened you know like like on this live acoustic thing uh, we have actually recorded uh, at cheatham street one night uh, when the train came by during one of mm -hmm. my songs, and it's like it was one of those magical moments we just happened to capture on, on tape, you know. And it's things like that that I keep wanting to try, to capture. You know, the Randy's fun to record because you never know what he's going to say, or what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. Like every night I stand on stage and just kind of go, "Here we go." There's no telling where he's going to go with this or what he's going to say. And yeah. It's, Sometimes it's the funniest stuff I've ever heard in my life, and sometimes it's like I'm going to kick your ass after the show. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's always entertaining. It's like never a dull moment with him, and I love how he wears his heart on his sleeve. And I think we both do. So I, I, I think you hear that in these recordings, and, and I encourage people to try to check out the live record. It's really fun. Yeah, live records are – I think like that's probably – I mean, this probably sounds – like an obvious thing, but it's more of a timestamp than even records are. And I, and I kind of feel like records are timestamps, you know? For sure, man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, yeah the live records are very timestamps. And, and, you know, the, um, 
that's there was a this whole record that we released is one year that we did one tour it wasn't like four years apart yeah. you know it was one tour that we did one year and so we'll just continue to, to do that I, I think that's exactly what it is i have a we have a really good show recorded that's full band from the whole my beard tour that we did because it's always an acoustic tour but then last year we took the band out because of the studio and we have a great show recorded from dallas texas that's the whole show unedited from start to finish that's literally being mastered as we speak right now and i just i have it that way it's done yeah who knows when i'm going to release it it might be 20 years from now but it's done and it's yeah. it's a really amazing record like it's just one of those like man you you know rob dennis is is my friend in nashville that that's doing this all this live stuff and he was like you just you got to hear this record man and so he sent it to me and i was just like man it's just as me and randy and this band that we had out on our, our a plus plus game you know and it's fun to capture those nights and yeah. hear it uh were you inspired by any like live records like well yeah the robert earl yeah okay number yeah. two live dinner that was that was the most inspiring record maybe ever for me mm -hmm. um what else i listen to a ton of springsteen live stuff because he's yeah he's, he's so he's good at capturing that has a bunch of like bootleg stuff you know oh yeah he uh, records audio and video every night yeah always has yeah he probably started video later on in his career but he's always recorded yeah you every can find show. a lot of just yeah. like unreleased stuff on youtube yeah of just like three hour shows oh yeah which man. is crazy he'll live on forever because he's got so much recorded and yeah his stuff is great too you never know what he's going to do or say or who's going to pull on stage and mm -hmm. yeah live records are fun if you if they're done right yeah what's your favorite springsteen i know you're a, a fan um man i really love this song called loose change it's on the tracks box yeah. set that he had um i'm shocked at that wreck that song never you know he the tracks were a bunch of songs that never found their way mm -hmm. to records and it's like it's a lot of that stuff i don't understand but especially loose change i'm like how in the world did a song that's well written not make it to an album you yeah know? It's there's just, a, a song on there called gave it a name what uh i really like but like it doesn't feel like it's finished i think but, a lot of that stuff wasn't they but just left it unfinished I, don't you think yeah but I, to me i'm like like you where it's like how, how did you not finish that like i was because he's just that good you know it's yeah. crazy there's no telling how many of those that probably hasn't recorded that he thought weren't that great and there's mm -hmm. no telling how good they probably are you know yeah he uh he's one of those artists who has really found a way to transform into essentially like a different guy over you know 10 years he's know? adapted very well yeah, he, to, like his yeah. uh like the nebraska era kind of stuff like mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of hints on the river of what was going to come to nebraska and there's still like even hints after in born in the usa that kind of feel the same and you know five years before that it's born to run you know it's it's strange how uh like he's been able to you know just adapt and change because he's so good at, at he's just so good at everything um but he has so much passion when it comes to his music and and what he does and you know one of his biggest influences was woody guthrie mm -hmm. and woody guthrie would you know he would he would go to 
he traveled around everywhere going where the madness was, where the darkness was, so that he could figure out how to write about it, you know, and that's that's what Springsteen really has done with his career. He's He finds ways to, I mean, he's got so many incredible stories of him just standing up for himself and for his music and, and uh, you know, he, you know here's, here's what needs to happen, not what is probably best overall. You know, the Nebraska record, he actually did a full studio uh, done, produced version of that record. And when he went to turn it in to the label, he pulled the tape from his his analog four-track yeah. recorder that he'd done all the work tapes on. He felt at the last second as he's turning in the label that that was a better representation of the songs. So he literally hands in a work tape, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's what you hear. And they loved it. But the, the studio version was a whole produced, I mean, it had like I'm on fire and all that stuff on there, you know, that eventually yeah. made its way to to uh, the USA. next record. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, then he, then he decides with Born in the USA, how big, how big can I get? I want to see how big I can get. And so he makes an overproduced pop record, pop commercial sounding yeah. record. And that was the game changer that just made him go from, you know, uh, you know, amphitheaters to damn stadiums, you know? Yeah. His, uh, he just always has a very good grasp on what he's going to do. I mean, it's the guy that fired the E street band because he felt like he didn't have anything else to offer each other. Mm-hmm. And then he brings them back when September 11th happens because he needs them back in his life. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable the passion that he has with, with the music. And that's why he's such a, a huge influence of mine because, um, I just went and saw him in Phoenix earlier, a couple months ago. It took my son, Bruce, actually he's named after him. And, uh, Bruce finally's getting old enough. He's 11 now. He want, wanted to see why I, you know, want to see his namesake. Right. Yeah. And, uh, man, it was just 66 years old. I guess he is now. And he was sick that day and just still three and a half hours. I mean, and my son was 10 at that time. He just turned 11 last week. So a 10-year-old boy didn't, for three and a half hours, didn't ask for anything to drink or eat or to go to the restroom. We sat there and watched the entire show on our feet, screaming and yelling the whole time. And Springsteen lost his voice and got it back and lost his voice and got it back <laughs> and was crowd surfing. And it's just like yeah. there's, not a, um, there's just not a better entertainer in the world. Yeah, that's to me the probably like the the biggest thing about Springsteen is that he's still doing three and a half hour yeah, shows. That's he crazy. Could, like nobody would complain if he was doing, you know, an hour and a half. No, nobody would complain at all. But It'd he's be the greatest doing, hour and a half ever. But he refuses to. Feels like he lets people down if he doesn't mm-hmm. give them three and a half. I guess. Yeah. He's a. Uh, he just loves. He loves music, man. You can see it when he's up there he just loves it mm-hmm. and it's fun to watch that it's very inspiring he's also done like shows where i remember there's like a like five nights in a row where you played uh i guess darkness on the edge mm-hmm. of town one night all the way through the next night he did it again and then he did like born to run born to run and born in the usa it may have been like six nights or something like that but playing the the record all the way through and then at the end obviously playing the hits and just new stuff. Uh, yeah, that's what this tour was. We saw a couple months ago. It, it was, was it the, the river, the stuff? river, you mm-hmm. know. So, he, which was a double disc. So it's a long, yeah, long album. <laughs> yeah. He played from start to finish. 
um, the river, and it was, you know, uh, the river. I, I've always loved the river, but not. I've always liked it, but not just falling in love with it. River mm -hmm. for some reason, I don't know why. And uh, after hearing it, the way he played it, uh, it was just maybe my favorite album now. I don't know. Yeah. It's just when you hear it and hear the stories and hear them, it's just amazing. There's a little probably like 30 40 minute documentary about the river on hbo back whenever he they did the re-release and all that kind of stuff and um it's one of those stories about how uh the river wasn't originally supposed to be like a two disc record it was supposed to be just a one disc one called like uh the ties that bind and then it's one of those stories where they get it all set up and he's just like no it's this is this isn't what it has it's supposed to be you know, and then like pulls guys back in and writing new songs and finally, you know, gets this two disc monster record and, you know, is just adamant about it being two discs and all right, back then, you know, two records. That's insane, uh, right? It's, yeah, back then. He just knew. It's it's crazy how he just knew from the get go, like what he should and shouldn't do. It's mm -hmm. it's always worked out for him. Yeah. What record would you play all the way through? Of mine? Yeah. Um, if you did a show like that. Well, right now, I'd probably go back to um, to Lost Hotel. Just that, That's a pretty nostalgic record for me in my career now. And people really – I still get comments about people loving that being that their favorite record of mine. I think it was more of the songwriter record for me. Mm -hmm. um, I really, really at that time wanted to prove myself as a songwriter. Um, I don't feel like I'd done that yet and really made a great record yet. Um, the blue light was fun and trying not to listen was amateur, you know, but it was what I was doing at the, for a young 20 year old. Um, but I, I feel like I really grew up at Lost Hotel. It took me three years to make the record and save up the money. And, um, it's just, um, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of memories from that record in those days of me really trying to prove myself mm -hmm. on so many different levels. And. Yeah, that, that that record still will always hold a very, very, very special place in my heart. I don't think it was my best record I ever made, but but it's definitely my most memorable. Yeah, yeah. I think like that's one of those things where those aren't necessarily they don't necessarily mean the same thing, you know, as far as most memorable best record. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people obviously kind of blend those two to be in the same thing, or like your favorite record, for example, you know, mm -hmm. like. My favorite record of Springsteen's is The River, but I don't think that's necessarily his best record. Right, right. You right. know, but, uh, yeah, so is that what you're doing tonight? Just going to play <laughs> The <laughs> yeah. Rivers? Yeah, man. I'm, <laughs> we, we're a little limited tonight on what we what we play. We've been doing our show. We've been, uh, we lost our buddy Jay Saldana, you know, our drummer, uh, who decided to get off the road and uh, do whatever he thinks he wants to do. I tried to tell him he's too good of a drummer to to not be doing it, but hopefully he'll realize that and figure out some way to do it in some form or fashion. But so we we've been um, you know when you have a, such a close knit group of guys and uh, not just not just uh, hang wise, but but playing wise, it you, know, you can put the best musicians in the world together, and it takes them a long time to gel. And yeah. then and so we we've uh, had different drummers come out over the last few months and. Uh, We've got a guy named Alex Geismer from Austin that's been playing with us the last few weeks and doing a great job. But 
we're still trying to piece the whole thing back together. So we're a little yeah. limited on what we can play. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's one of those things where you know, it takes time to gel, you know. Yeah, uh, it takes a lot, long, a while to learn everybody's senses, and the drummer, you know, is the glue that holds it all together. It's the mm-hmm. critical. It's the offensive lineman of the band, you know, the guys that does the most work and gets the least amount of credit. But yeah, the the drummer's drummer's it makes yeah. or breaks records. He makes or breaks the live shows. I mean, it's the focal point of everything you do. So mm-hmm. everybody wants to give the credit to the singers and the writers and the guitar players, but it's it's the rhythm section and the, the drummers that, that make us make us who we are. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I guess this was probably going to come up. Uh, you talked about it already a couple times, but, like, the whole the minor leagues thing. Yeah. What, what's, uh, I guess, My like, you guys. had on, by the way, from <laughs> the Rock Hounds. I yeah. bought it yesterday. You guys were down there yesterday. How ironic was it we played a minor league baseball field last night that's pretty funny <laughs> uh which Chase. we told granger we let granger know you know yeah. he, he and i have uh since since all this has happened uh he called me and was very handled it very classy and so i we he and i've been texting a lot back and forth for those of y'all out there that are wondering what we're talking about so that's i read enough. i read an article on the boot which i think the boot is really cool they they always uh, they, they've talked about us a little in the past, and have always seemed to keep a really good head on what the, what's going on with country music, you know. And and mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> so I just happened to uh, I actually got the, this article sent to me by someone. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get anybody else stirred into this mess with me. <laughs> uh, so I read the article, and it was a very well written, really really great piece on Granger <laughs> Granger Smith and his family and his work ethic and his pride from being from Texas and all this great stuff. But there was one paragraph that stuck out to me that said, um, I'm very, very fortunate for the Texas music scene as a testing ground. Uh, it was, it was the minor leagues for us. That's what it, that's what it, that's what it is. Yeah. Something to that nature. So I just reposted that paragraph and said, love my life. Cheers to the minor leagues. And, didn't say anything bad about Granger or his music or anything mm-hmm. and just simply said if that's the way someone feels my my thought at the time was if that's the way someone feels I'm just let it be known I'm happy I'm good yeah it. I'm good with that and it is just blown up um like crazy it's what all the comments of people just getting so out of hand of people saying ridiculous things that I you know that I uh am jealous or that I'm bitter or that I'm you know, um, calling him a sellout. And I mean, where you get that from that one statement, I have no yeah. clue, but people just like to be mean, I guess sometimes. And yeah, well, that's one of those things where you said like six words or something like that, six or seven eight words. words. Yeah. And, or, okay. Eight. I've counted uh, them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I've never seen so much of a blow up about me either. I thought it was just kind of one of those, like, you had an opinion, not necessarily even an opinion. You had an opinion, but like nothing that's nothing, over the nothing, top. Yeah, nothing you know? crazy. I went, definitely wasn't shit talking anybody. Yeah. You know, I just uh, it definitely has gotten out of hand. But you know, since it's brought up and since people are are questioning it, and, and you know, I will say that that um, since I have a right now to defend myself, um, 
you know, I, I, I did get a little offended by it because I, I don't think that it's testing ground. I don't think Texas music is that is the minor leagues. Um, and I don't necessarily think that Granger meant it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it was taken out of context. I think he probably, like he and I discussed, he's had different, a different career in Texas and blown up. And this is a completely different career than me. Yeah. So it, it, it was just it was just a poor choice of words is all it was. He's a great guy, and I've always heard great things about him. And you know, but 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 I believe where where my thought at the time was was, man, Texas is so much more than a testing ground. This is a people. This is a. We, I always talk about this. The foundation. Mm-hmm. We have a foundation of fans that we build here to have an established career that can last for 40 or 50 years if you want to do it that long that's not testing ground that is something that's very you know however you want to call it major league or something that's very noteworthy and something that we should that we're very proud of here and uh i just feel like feel like i should you know now that it's being brought up i'm just going to stand up for our scene and stand up for not just our scene but indie artists everywhere yeah um Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson. I mean, like, the list goes on and on of, of artists that, uh, you know, do things the way they want to. I've been on both sides. I've been on a major label before, um, and I've I've been on independent labels before. Yeah. You know, I've been indie like I'm now. So, I know both sides. I know the pressure that he faces. And like I said, that whole article was him talking very highly of Texas and his family, where he came from, and all that stuff. So. Um, I definitely did not intend to uh, cause the stir for him and his family that it, it has caused. Yeah. I think, like, one, I don't think he necessarily meant it that way. You know what I mean? I don't. I think he uh, he could have said it a whole lot better, in better terms. Um, but also, I think that, in a way, a lot of people have been hypocritical on this whole thing. Because had it been a like a Nashville guy, like an established Nashville guy, I think everyone would be, you know, rioting about a comment like that. Um, mm. Now, obviously, there's a lot of people who are critical of the comment and, uh, you know, have been uh, vocal about that. But I, I think, like, you know, it... I, I don't know. I think like a lot of fan fans here in Texas have been a little uh, quieter about the comment than I thought they would have. Because honestly, I think it, had it been any national guy, like mm-hmm. established national guy, people would have been up in arms, you know? Yeah. Because uh, like Florida Georgia Line had a comment, like that whole thing with Charlie Robinson a few months back. Right. And people were going all ape shit about that. You know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know, man. I... I I think uh, the scene is very proud, and it's very amazing. I think it's the best fans, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's just the furthest thing from minor leagues. It's a it's a great established um, foundation of of fans and friends and people that love music, yeah, and don't care about anything other than that. And yeah. it's it's really all it is, you know. It, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. And nowadays, more than ever, I, th- I think the majors are the are the minors now. I think they're in the minor. 
as far as how they uh, there's just not very many of them anymore that really are knowing how to survive. And, uh, uh, you know, to me, it's all relative. Success is relative. It's all in your head. There's there's kids out there that are consider opening up for us or the Randy Rogers band or somebody that consider that successful. Yeah, uh, there's there's people that, you know, think they need to be in a tour bus to be successful. There's people that, you know, whatever whatever your form of success is, then it's then you're successful. Mm -hmm. um, there is no major minors. There is not no reason to even draw boundary lines in the sand anymore because there's this it's so diverse and music is so wide open and so so many different avenues to get your career started and going and put it out there for for everyone to hear and follow along so we're very blessed and lucky to have everyone and i mean press in the scene i mean djs i mean radio stations i mean uh record stores um the bus venues, drivers yeah. i mean venues that, that that are willing to put us in, in their bars i mean this is such a blessing that we have, and I just wanted to reiterate that. That's all I did. Um, yeah. And I wish, I want to end this whole thing by saying that I wish Granger Smith and his band so much success because they're from Texas, and the more success they experience, the better it is for all of us. And like I told him, I'm, we're rooting for you. I say a prayer for him every night since then. I, we always say a prayer before we walk on stage. Um, I throw him in my thoughts and say, I hope they get through all this nonsense that they're getting. Yeah. And um, and I hope they, they come out better for it. And, and I hope the next time he has a chance to talk about our scene, I, I believe he'll say the right words that he, the, you know, the way he really feels. And, and it'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. We're we all make mistakes and we all live and learn from him. And I can't say enough great things about him and how classy he's been to me since since all of this. So. Yeah, it's all part of it, man. Just yeah, well, another step. Like I told him, man. I said, "Hey, you and I are in the age-old saying uh, any publicity is good publicity." I guess you and I are both <laughs> about to find out if that's really true or not. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I guess we'll see tonight. Yeah, how many people come to Burn Records or anything? Yeah, I'm know. not worried about it. <laughs> they, if, if they're that passionate about burning records and whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, we're rolling on an hour here, so yeah. Uh, yeah. It's good talking with you. Yeah, man, you too. Thanks so much. Going to let you. I enjoyed talking music. So. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'll let you.